0: We're going to jump into our pastors this morning. Before we do, if you haven't met me before, if there's this strange bearded man in front of you, my name is Nolan. I uh, come to church here. So, hello. You may also know my wife, Anna, or our son, Uriah. He's downstairs being real cute. If we haven't met you, we're sorry. We look forward to it. So let's, let's make it happen soon. John just asked me to fill in this week. Uh, so subs are in. And we'll see what happens, I guess. I just want to say something up front, too. Um, I feel like whenever there's a guest speaker, or I, I should maybe say, like, as a guest speaker, you know, I get to preach. I used to get to preach a lot. I used to work at a church, and now it's like I get a couple chances a year, right? And so there's this temptation that I should, like, try to really do something crazy and blow your minds and make it so that everybody loved it. But I just decided I don't care anymore about that. Uh What I I was just praying about as I was prepping this message was just that the Lord would show us the truth of the Bible, that we'd be able to talk about Jesus exactly for who he is, and he doesn't really need any extra fluff or hype or anything like that. I think uh, we'll love him for for being the guy that he is. And uh, so... Let's do that together. We're going to be in a passage uh, in Luke 15, verses 1 through 7. So you can start turning there now if you have a phone or a Bible or something you want to get there. Had a busy week, so we don't have slides, grassroots. Hope it's okay with you. Um, and so that's going to be the passage we're in. While you're turning there, uh, this is a story that probably a lot of you have heard. It's uh, the parable of the shepherd and the sheep. And so since we're going to be talking about shepherds for like the next 30 minutes, I thought maybe we would just paint a quick mental picture of what shepherding life is like. Because for us, like, that's not a real common trade that I know of. Okay, right, yeah. So it looks like none of us are shepherds. So I figured let's just get a mental picture. Visual setting would be first. I think, like, rolling green hills, kind of dry climate, weeds mixed in around the grass— I picture, like, these nice big trees every once in a while, like from the Lion King, that you just sit under, and it's, like, shade, and the birds above you. It's real nice. Cloudy, kind of chilly, but you've got that, like, typical Sunday school get up where you've got, like, the long, scratchy-looking brown robes, right? So we're doing okay. The smell is interesting. Got a lot of sheep, so it's not great. But, you know, we're outside. There's the fresh air. Uh, so that's a beautiful thing, and it's kind of a solitary thing, right? There's probably not heaps and heaps of other people. You might be the only person out there, and you've just got you and your flock. And that's the situation you're in. And so we jump into this passage in Luke 15, and Jesus is going to tell a parable you're familiar with. Here's, here's how this passage goes, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to listen to him, to Jesus. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners, and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, and he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture, and go after the one which is lost, until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and we're so thankful you've given us a way that we get to know you. Um, Thankful that you came and you walked this earth and you interacted with people, that you came face to face, and that you revealed yourself to us. You didn't leave us in mystery or wondering what you were like, but You showed us and told us exactly what your nature is and who you are. And by that, we can now know you. So God, I just, I pray as we look at these just few verses in Scripture this morning, you would speak to us that your Holy Spirit would work on our hearts, that you'd open our minds to learn. And that ultimately, as we walk out of the doors in just a little bit, that we would have uh, fallen more deeply in love with you and you'd be shaping our lives to honor and glorify you more. So we pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this analogy of... God being a shepherd, us being the sheep, it's used all over in Scripture. If you want to just jot down a little note, Ezekiel 34 was was kind of like almost word for word, exactly what Jesus tells in this parable. It's a a time in the Old Testament when God is talking about how he's going to bring his people back to himself. He's going to do this restorative work. It's this really beautiful picture, even though it's maybe not so familiar to us. What's really important to remember in this passage, and I'll talk about this in any passage of Scripture that we read, The Bible is always more about God than it is about us. And our temptation, like if you do your morning devotions, you just want to jump in or something, you want to read something quick in Scripture and learn how it applies to your life. And so you read some Psalm of David about how he's going to have victory and triumph. And you have like a job interview that day. And you're like, all right, I think God just told me I'm getting the job, right? Like that's not exactly how it works. The Scriptures are more about God first. And we learn about Him and that tells us lots and lots about ourselves. And the same is true in this passage. Jesus is the shepherd. We are the sheep. And understanding the context in which Jesus told this parable actually kind of changes what he was, what he was attempting to do by it. At this time, I'm real thirsty. So I'm going to take a drink. Hold up. At this time, Jesus was sort of at the height of his preaching and teaching ministry. So he kind of came on the scene, and there's this arc to his ministry where You know, the early things that happen, right? He does some tricks at a wedding and then his cousin baptizes him and God the Father speaks through the clouds and that's pretty crazy. And then he goes off and he's tempted and he resists the devil for a long time. And then after that, he starts going from town to town and he opens up the scriptures with them and he tells them like what it really all means. And he says that it's about him. And a lot of people didn't like that. And he gets kicked out of town after town after town after town until eventually he's this really recognizable figure where when he goes places, he's very polarizing. There's either people who love this message that he's been preaching or they're very angry about it. And at this point, he is at the height of this. And so when he goes into a town and he starts teaching, he gathers huge crowds of people that either want to listen to him and learn from him or want to find something at fault in his message and ruin him. And he's very bold, as as you know, throughout all of his teaching. And he hits on a a core message a lot of times, especially in the book of Luke. We see him teach about the hearts of people. He's far more concerned about the change God does within people, right, than just their their actions that they can clean up outside of that. And he goes at people. He's bold that he'll talk about their marriage, their work, their time, their words, their politics, their money. He, He doesn't hold any punches, He just goes at people and talks about the heart of the gospel and them falling in line with that. And so the context of this passage in Luke 15, right beforehand, he's preaching and he's teaching, and he's teaching specifically challenging two ideas. The first is he's talking to people who think of themselves as more highly than they really are. They kind of think a little bit too much of themselves. And the second thing is he's challenging people who hold on to their possessions and their status in this life, and they cling to it. And what it does, if you read through that chapter and then into this one, is it does two sort of opposite but similar things. The first is for people who desperately, desperately needed that message, they're just magnetized to him. People who are broken, who know they've made mistakes, who have trouble— who have sorrow, who are looking for hope, who know they are sinners and they've messed up, but are looking for redemption, those broken people come flocking to Jesus by the dozens and they'll bring their friends and their family and they're, they're telling them about this hope, that this message of this man who's finally called them out for where they are, but is giving them a way out. And the second thing it does is it attracts people who are really, really bothered by this people who did think of themselves as too highly and who did hold on to this life a little bit too dearly. And those people start to crowd together in the back of the scene. And they want to mock and they want to scoff at Jesus and his words and they want to find something wrong in what he's been saying. And namely, that's the Pharisees, right? The, the Jewish religious leaders at the time. If you're not real familiar with who the Pharisees were, uh, they were the people that were kind of in charge of the teaching. And what they had done— Uh, what they're really known for is they had set up a lot of rules that were more strict than the rules God actually set up himself. And their thought was, if we don't ever break these really strict rules, then we're never going to run the risk of breaking God's rules. And so they were known as people who were um, very revered and maybe feared and thought of as sort of a high position in society. And they viewed themselves that way. And so here they are mocking Jesus and wanting to find something wrong with him. And so in this passage, that's important to know because Jesus is so clever in his teaching. If we really pay attention, he has this crowd of people in front of them who are just hungry for his words. They'll they'll just grip onto anything he says. And so he's going to give them a message that they can resonate with. But really what this whole chapter is, if you read the parable after this about the lost coin and the prodigal son after that, it's all like a burn to the Pharisees, like he's roasting them and he's jabbing at them and he's trying to get under their skin. And that's really what this message is doing. And it's ridiculous because the Pharisees, even at the beginning of this chapter, you read in in verse 1 and and 2, it says, all the tax collectors, the sinners, these were the people who who were kind of looked down on in society. They were coming near him to listen. But the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And it's so ridiculous because Jesus' mission and message from day one was to rescue lost people and bring them back to himself. And the only way you do that is by interacting with them. A doctor doesn't open up an office and only accept fully healthy patients and lock the sick ones outside, right? That would be, actually, that would be what a lot of commentators call dumb. That would be stupid, right? So that's not what Jesus does. He interacts with the people that he needs to heal and save. And so, as he tells this parable, we're going to look at three things. The first is the lost sheep. We're going to start there. Then we're going to go look at the shepherd and what we can learn about Jesus through that. And then this celebration at the end of the parable and what that tells us. And so, in verse 4, Jesus begins to tell this parable and he says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Now, there's not a ton about this sheep in particular uh, in this passage that the scripture just expounds on what this sheep was like and what its name was and how thick its wool was. But the people of this day, this would have been an incredibly familiar illustration to them. A lot of people held their wealth in the form of livestock at that time. And so many families would have uh, whole flocks of either sheep or cattle or whatever it might be. And if you didn't, chances are you might work as a shepherd in one of those avenues and so the idea of, of having a flock and then losing one of them would have been just an incredibly familiar picture to these people. And they would have known a few things about that sheep that actually tell us a bit about ourselves. So the first is that sheep do this. They're not big thinkers. They just wander around. And if there's grass, they will eat it. And they just keep going that way and eating more grass. That's what they do. And so they would wander off all the time. It was a perfectly safe environment, but they would go for no real reason elsewhere until they were lost. Uh, and it was totally up to the sheep. The second thing, uh, just from doing some research, is it, at the time sheep would do this and they are so weak. I mean, think about a little sheep, right? I don't even know how they walk. They got these little skinny little legs, and then they got this huge body. How are they supposed to carry that thing around, right? And so what happened was they would wander off real far, and then their poor little sheep bodies would get so weak and frail they have to just lay down, which is cute. But what would happen is, by the time they had the strength to maybe wander back to their flock, they would have completely forgotten. They don't have great memory. But the other thing is, they'd be kind of in danger, right? There's animals that might prey on them, and a lot of times those sheep never made it back. And it's not just that it wasn't likely, it was that they were kind of completely incapable of it. They were so weak, and they were so foolish, they didn't know how to get back. But there was no way a sheep was going to wander off for three days and then a week later just show up back in the flock. It just didn't happen. A sheep was gone forever if you didn't go find it. So they didn't have the strength. And then the last thing that people knew is that, like, the sheep, they're not even smart enough to know how to get back. You know, they don't even think, oh, I need to find my shepherd. I'm I'm lost. No, they're just a sheep. They just eat. That's what they do. And although it's not really clear, it doesn't talk about all those things in the passage, people would have known those things And the hard part is, the sheep is us. All these lousy, silly things about the sheep tell us about our own condition and our own state. So just to run through those things about the sheep, I mean, we're just like that, right? If we think about the fold and the family of God, we too have wandered away foolishly, without any foresight, without really thinking about why we're doing, what we're doing, or the long-term ramifications Human nature is—we just sin and we rebel and we wander from God. We want independence or something, or we're searching and we look for it in all the wrong ways. Isaiah fifty-three actually says this. It says, "We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him—that's going to be Jesus—the iniquity of us all." I don't want to trivialize it, but we're we're just we're kind of dumb. We're foolish people, we're not great at making decisions about our our faith or our spiritual life. like if you think about it, if we're just be honest here I know we're in church, but like sometimes when you do the right thing, like you make the right decision morally, spiritually, sometimes it's not even that big of a thing, but you're like, oh, "Yeah, nailed it, and it's like, "Nice, Nolan, you weren't a horrible sinner in face of the eternal salvation provided for you by God. good job, like that's really admirable. No, like we're, we're so poor at making those decisions that when we do the right thing, we almost surprise ourselves. And we're just like these sheep, right? We're, we're just foolish. We wander away. That's what we do. And even if you know Christ, even if you've had powerful experiences after being saved and the Holy Spirit's worked on you, chances are there's still seasons where you just go looking for something else. And we wander, and we put ourselves in these horrible positions. And the Bible's really clear throughout that it's us who broke the relationship we have with God, not the other way around. It's us who wandered away. And don't worry, it gets worse for a second. The next thing about these sheep is that they're completely unable to get back to the shepherd on their own. They're too weak, they're too foolish. Again, is that not us? We've put ourselves in this situation and Jesus is making a statement here that not only were we the ones that wandered away from God, but once that was done, we're completely incapable of getting back on our own. Uh, 1 Corinthians two fourteen a quick verse about this. It just says, The person without the Spirit, anybody who's, who's not yet saved, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. And then Isaiah, again, 64, says, All of us have become like the one who's unclean. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. So it's clear as day. You know, without God there to save us, we are too foolish. We're too weak to get back to Him on our own. We're not that good. We're not that strong. Once we have broken that relationship, there's nothing we can do to get cleaned up and good enough again to make ourselves right for God. And so we're like that sheep. We're lost. We're out there on our own with no way back to safety and to health. Um, Just by yourselves, I thought of an analogy while I I was prepping this. Sometimes at night, uh, before I put Uriah to bed, he's he's one, in case you haven't seen him, he's real cute, you should see him. Uh, Before I put him to bed, we'll go in his room and we'll start to play, and he's got a sweet basketball net. He made his first actual shot on it the other day, so I was like, my son's going to the NBA. All right, so we'll play basketball. We'll play basketball. (laughs) We'll read books. We'll get out toys. I didn't even know we had. He has this habit that he likes to just pull his clothes out and leave them places. I guess that's fun. Um, I haven't tried it a ton, but that's what he does. And so before we know it, it's, you know, it's bedtime, and it's ready to change his diaper, and I'm ready to put him in bed, and you can't walk in the room. It's just a mess. And sometimes in those moments, I just have to sit back and I have to say, this mess is so out of control. I don't even know where these things go, and it's it's too great for me to possibly clean up on my own. The only way this mess will ever get clean is if Anna does it, you know? I mean, seriously, like, there's no— I'm i am incapable, and I'm humble and willing to confess that to her. Um, I just put that burden on her, and she takes care of it. So it's kind of the same way, right? Like, we're just—we can't do anything about it. No, but in a serious note, like, that is— that's the picture the Bible paints of us in our sin, that we just are, are a mess and we're helpless and we can't fix things on our own. We're just, that's just where we are. And don't worry, it does get a little bit worse before it gets better. The last thing we talked about these sheep is that they didn't even try to get back, right? The sheep just wanders and it's not wise enough to think to get back to the shepherd. That's us. We go off in our sin and we make a mess and we've, we create all sorts of hurt and pain for ourselves and others and if we're being honest, if it weren't for God doing something in our lives, like, we don't even try. You know, I can think of my own, like, journey in my faith. When I was, like, 15, I was just an idiot, and I was sinning left and right and all sorts of foolish decisions. Don't talk to my parents who are here because they'll tell you too much about it. But at that point, I wasn't doing anything to get to the Lord. It took the Lord, like, slapping me in the face and showing me his love and showing me his grace and his mercy through the people in my life and how his, his scripture rang true for me that I thought, oh, man. Lord, you've just been after me for literally over a decade of my life now, and I've just been running. And Okay. All right. Fine. There's a few passages I wanted to share that were significant about this. Psalm 14 says, The fool says in his heart, There's no God. They're corrupt, and their ways are vile, and there's no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There's no one who does good. Not even one. So we wandered away. We're too weak to get back on our own. And we don't even try. On our own, we don't even try to make an effort to get back to the Lord. So I know this is kind of the bad news before the good news. But it's important that we come to grips with that, right? The the more we understand the severity of the situation we were in, maybe are in, without Christ, the more his salvation is sweet to us the more we realize we needed him to be at work. And so although it's kind of tough news, we have to accept the fact that just like these sheep made some stupid mistakes and were pretty incapable and lousy. Like, that's, that's what the Bible says we are. That's who the Bible says we are. Foolish, helpless, stubborn sheep. Now, there is good news. We're not done. You're not just like going to go home and try to watch football and feel better about yourselves. no. There's some good stuff in this passage. And so we read in the next few verses, uh, again, in 4 through 6, if you want to just look back, it says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and he lost one, doesn't leave the ninety-nine and go to the open pasture to, to go after the one who's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice, I found the sheep which was lost. And so from these few verses we get some really good news about this shepherd. And it spells out a lot of things that we got to be careful and pay attention to these little details and some things will start to stand out. So, the first thing that it doesn't even say explicitly here but it's kind of uncommon and it's worth noting is that apparently the shepherd here is also the owner of this flock which is important because a lot of times the owner of the flock would hire out hands and they wouldn't really be hands-on with it at all. They would kind of just have other people take care of it. But in this parable that Jesus tells, he specifically makes the person who owns the sheep the one who cares for them. And that's Jesus, right? That personal involvement and relationship is completely true about our God. He's not some distant figure that's really unknown to us and is sort of vague and mysterious. He knows us so intimately And it's completely hands-on. He came to this earth, and he walked around people like he did in this story to be involved with them and to provide them salvation in a very intimate way. And what's funny is, if you think about the beginning of this passage, the Pharisees are complaining why. It wasn't really so much about Jesus' words. It was because he associated with sinners. (sighs) What a horrible thing. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the fact that if we're saved on this side of the cross, the Holy Spirit actually dwells within us. And so there's this scandalous truth that the Pharisees would have just shrieked at, that not only did Jesus walk among sinners, but that he would live in them. That Jesus actually takes up his dwelling inside of us. That's how closely he is involved in our lives. We get to serve and know a God who loves us deeply and personally, and that we can, like, you can go home, you can drive home and be in your car, and you can just talk to the creator of the universe. That's the privilege we have. Man, sometimes when I pray, I just have to stop and think that because otherwise I'll rattle off my prayer requests and my worries, and I'm like, do I forget what I'm doing? Like, if, it's embarrassing. I'm a, I'm a big, I might have mentioned this last time I preached, actually. I'm a real big Justin Timberlake fan. You know what I'm saying? And if I was driving home, and Justin Timberlake called me, and was like, yo, just wanted to talk, I would be like a little fan, 13-year-old girl. You know, I'd be all excited and giddy. And I get to talk to the creator of the universe at my whim, and I just, it's like no big deal to me. Man. Let's not waste the fact that God's so intimately involved in our lives. Let's keep going. The second thing we notice is that it's so obvious we wouldn't have a story here if it wasn't true. The shepherd goes after the sheep. Jesus says it in a matter-of-fact way. Which of you wouldn't go after that sheep? Now, again, that's a small detail. But to the Pharisees, that was a completely new concept. They were okay with the fact that uh, a sinner who had repented that God might accept them and forgive them, and welcome them into the people of God. But the thought that God was going after sinners, that he was initiating that relationship, was frustrating and new to them. That's not something they felt comfortable with. That, to them, might have felt like God had put himself in too low of a position. But scriptures are very clear. We don't get back to the Lord unless he comes after us. And so that's what the shepherd does. He goes searching. And another small detail in that, if you read carefully, it says, he goes after the one which is lost, what? Until he finds it. So the third thing is the shepherd doesn't just kind of wander off and stroll around, looking down over the hill, down the cliff, and go, help. Nah. Yes, he's dead. All right. Still got 99. No. The shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes out on a mission until he finds that lost sheep. Whatever the state that it might be in is. And he's going to keep looking from the words used here until he finds it. And man, that, that gives my soul so much peace and comfort that that's Jesus' work. That He doesn't just leisurely come after us. He comes recklessly in pursuit of us in our lives. Not because of what we've done, but because of his love and his grace that he came to earth and he was set on this mission to bring his people to himself. He went to extreme means and measures to make that happen. Even though the night before he was arrested, he was praying, saying, Father, if there's any other way that I wouldn't have to go through all this torture, like, please let it happen. When there was no other way, he went through with it. He was betrayed and abandoned and mocked and beaten and scorned and killed. And he was okay with doing that. He was silent doing that for us because he was on a mission to find his people. He wasn't going to stop until he found them and had rescued them. He did it for his glory and for our good. Now, one of the other small details I love about this, what happens in verse 5? When he finds it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing and he takes it home. Jesus does all the work here. I don't know a lot about sheep. When I was in Australia, I lived in Australia for a brief time. I went and stayed on a sheep shearing farm for a while and I got to see a lot of sheep. But I don't really know a lot about them. And as I was doing some more research on this whole shepherding business, sheep are heavy. They're big. They on average weigh between 100 to 250 pounds. Okay? Now just I'm not going to do this this morning. But I'm going to be teaching this message at a youth group soon. And I'm going to have one of those middle school students try to carry that weight and see how they do with it. And I'm just personally really looking forward to watching that happen. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, you think about this. This shepherd has just gone and hiked through hills and rocks and plains and finally found this sheep. And he doesn't just lead it back. The passage says he puts it on his shoulders, this full weight. And I just think about that. Aside from just the weight smelly, hot, stinky, tired. And you have to carry a sheep all the way back to whoever knows where you came from. But that detail is important because that's how the gospel works again. That God didn't just come to earth and kind of like give us a rope and say, okay, pull yourselves up and you can get the rest of the way. No, Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins and he rose again to raise, uh, sorry, to defeat the power of sin and death forever. He literally did all all of the work. And then even in our lives, he's working on us through his Holy Spirit, and through the life circumstances he ordains to bring us to himself. And so when we finally put our faith in Jesus, it's not like we've earned our way to heaven. It's the exact opposite. It's that we've earned our way to hell and that somehow in spite of that, Jesus loved us and cared about us enough and had so much grace and mercy that he, he brought us back to himself. And he does it, oh, this is, this is mind-blowing. I'm sorry, I know I'm just getting into the inertia here, but that's what scripture is. It says that he does it in verse five. He lays it on his shoulders, doing what? Rejoicing. I'm just gonna be real. If I had 150 pounds, stinky, furry sheep sitting on my shoulders and I had to carry it for more than a minute, and let's just be honest, look at my body type. I'm not really gonna get too far with that sheep on my back, right? I'm not happy. I am gonna be complaining and grumbling I'm probably saying some things I shouldn't say, especially here with this microphone this morning in church, right? Like I'm not going to be a happy camper. And this shepherd, though, cares so much about this sheep that he's on a mission to rescue, that when he has a chance to save it, he's rejoicing and he's overwhelmed with the fact that he gets to love and take care of the sheep of his. And then lastly, this is just the last thing, and then we'll kind of get into our close, is that when he gets back, he gets the sheep back to his flock and his home, he doesn't just go nuts on this sheep for wandering away. In my research, I couldn't find a lot about sheep discipline, so I'm just kind of making this up. But it's not like he like grabs the sheep by the face and tells it how bad of a sheep it is, and it's not getting any treats. I don't know if they have treats. Anytime soon or whatever. It's that he throws a party for the fact that he found this sheep and it's been restored to him. And he invites his friends and neighbors to come celebrate this with him. And as verse 7 says, we're going to get to in a second, that's what God does with us. The fact that he has saved us, he is so excited about the work he's done. I imagine it being like a good cook, right? Who makes this amazing meal and they finally take a taste and they're like, yeah, I nailed it, right? That's that's how God looks at his work, that he is so overjoyed with how he's worked in our lives that he is literally planning an eternal celebration for us in heaven right now to party about what he's done for us. That's the nature of the God we serve. And it's worth teasing those things out, because if I'm being honest, sometimes when I just quickly think about Jesus throughout my week, I don't think that way. I think like, oh, that's a nice a nice little comforting idea. Or I think, oh, that's like a nice song. It makes me feel less stressed out or something. But when we think about Jesus, the picture he's painted and that Scripture paints everywhere throughout is that he is on a rampage to come find us. He loves us. He's initiated a personal relationship with us. He'll stop at no end until he's found us. And he's paid dearly and desperately to afford that to himself. And that he finds incredible joy though he was put through horrible sorrow to know us, though we bring nothing good to the table. That is Jesus. And so if we don't think like that, if, if, if we just kind of have these trite, like trivial thoughts about who Jesus is throughout the week, then it's no wonder that we wander. It's no wonder that we make mistakes. It's no wonder we go back to our sin and again and again because this just simple idea of Jesus as a nice guy is boring. Thinking of him as this radical picture of love and grace and mercy for us, that's what brings us to our knees and surrender before him and causes us to live lives that he designed us to live. And so I said there was one last thing we were going to talk about, and that's this celebration that Jesus plans. And so in verse 7, he says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who what? Who need no repentance. Now, that's a weird ending to this story. Specifically, like that's a weird thing to say. Why, Why wouldn't God be excited about the 99 people? That's sort of a strange thing. Like, why why isn't that a big deal? And, And people might think like, oh yeah, I'm already, I'm good to go. God's not so pleased about that. But that's exactly why Jesus makes this statement. Is that, as we've been talking about, there is absolutely no one who is righteous. There's really no other 99. There's no one who from the time they're born is just, they're good to go. And they don't have any need of Jesus. So of course, when God finds that, that person who he's brought back to himself and done an amazing work. And of course he's overjoyed more than anything in the world because everyone is lost. I'm not not even going to give you a passage. I hope you know from scripture from A to Z. It talks about how every person is sinful and in need of the Lord. And I think as Jesus said this, he, he knew how mad the Pharisees were going to get. And he knew he was being sarcastic. That's what I like about Jesus. It's like, we should love him, of course. He's God, and he, everything about him is perfect. But he's a likable dude. Like, he's funny. I was reading a paper when preparing about this, about Jesus being funny in the book of Luke. And he's funny. And he's sarcastic, which I love to be with people. And in this, you know, I can imagine him, like, preaching, and there's, like, his disciples are kind of hanging out here, and all the people are out here, and he says, you know, more than the 99 people who don't need to repent. Right? And he's thinking about the Pharisees in the back of the room. And their reaction could have only been one of two things. Either one, they could come to grips with the fact that they too needed to repent. They could say, man, you know, as prideful and as haughty and as high as we think of ourselves. We're just like everybody else. We we too do need to repent. And that's what really brings Jesus joy. Or the second thing that a lot of them did was they could get mad about it. And they could think, you know, this is ridiculous. We are, we've obeyed all the rules our whole lives. We know there's Pharisees in Scripture that have said that. I don't need you. You should be thankful for me. Okay. And so Jesus delivers this last little jab that there is a party going on in heaven for people who are willing to confess that they've made mistakes and that they need a Savior. And if you think that that's not you, if you think you're going to be good on your own, and that Jesus is kind of irrelevant to you, then this celebration, maybe it's not really for you. You might do best to be elsewhere at that period in time. And so there's a lot that we can learn from this short little parable. And I guess as, as we really finish out, I just I kind of want to just put this back on you and I want to ask where you are, right? Maybe you're you're sort of like that sheep who's still wandering away and you've just drifted from the Lord and you've been looking for who knows what. And maybe sometimes it's been okay, and maybe sometimes it's been dangerous and frustrating and dark. And if that's you, I would just like challenge you and ask you like, maybe it's worth taking a real look at this Jesus that the Bible teaches. Not the one that everybody wants to portray nowadays, but the one really that's in Scripture. This loving, righteous, merciful, caring God, and and just face up to facts with who he is. Or maybe you're like the sheep who's been brought back into the flock, and that's you. One thing I thought about, when the shepherd's over here rejoicing, he's rejoicing more than the sheep, right? Like, what's the sheep do? It's just eating different green grass and chewing new cud. Like, it's, and the shepherd's going nuts. God actually finds more joy in our salvation than we do. And maybe if you're in that situation where you've been brought back to the fold of God, it's worth taking some time to reflect on who God is and have some real thankfulness and celebrate the work he's done. Or maybe, and you know, I wouldn't put it past this. Like, we don't like to admit this, but maybe there's some people in here who, who have kind of been like those Pharisees that are almost cynical, who are scoffing, who don't really care about the work that Jesus has done. You're like not impressed anymore. And you just think you're kind of in too good of a situation. Here's the thing. Wherever you might be, maybe you're somewhere in between, I don't know. It, it kind of doesn't matter because it's like I said in the beginning. Scriptures are always more about Jesus than they are about us. And so wherever you're at, I would just ask you, like this week, when you, I don't know what your devotional time looks like or what your time with the Lord looks like, whatever the format it takes is, when you think about Jesus, when you interact with him, I would just challenge you and press you, like, don't be lazy. Like, actually remember and recall to memory these scriptures and who he is and whatever devices might remind you of, of this God that we serve and what his character is actually like. Because when you do that, when you don't shortchange, when I don't shortchange who he is. It brings me reason to celebrate. It brings me reason to have joy and to surrender and to love God, to get me out of a dry spell and remember the good times of, of what God's provided, to remember the joy and the satisfaction that is his salvation, to remember how desperate of a place I was in and how wonderful of a place I'm now in. So that's what I would ask you. Don't fail to celebrate the good work God has done. He's doing it All the time. He's doing it now. We're going to do it for eternity. Don't think you're too deep into this thing or it's corny or cheesy or embarrassing. David was willing to be embarrassed to celebrate the good work of God. And so as we do that together in just a minute, as we sing and as you do that throughout your week, I would just challenge you, like celebrate the word of God, the work of God. Celebrate Jesus. And don't take him... granted. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for who you are. Thank you for your love. And sometimes, Lord, we're, we're kind of speechless because there's nothing we could really say to express our true thankfulness or be thankful enough for the work you've done in our lives. But Nevertheless, we just we want to tell you we're so grateful for who you are and for what you've done. We're encouraged by a passage like this that calls to memory exactly the type of God you are that you love us desperately and passionately and personally and that you stop at no ends, God. And so I pray we wouldn't we wouldn't lose sight of that. And I pray that we, whatever situation we might be in that you would you would ingrain that image of yourself in our minds and so that our faith wouldn't be a Sunday morning hobby that it wouldn't be a nice set of rules we try to follow to be a nice or a good person but that just as you're far more concerned with that you would be really active in changing us and who we are and changing our hearts and our minds to love you more to really be a group of individual believers that makes a church that is giving you glory constantly within these walls and without. And so Lord, just just tear down our pride. Though it might hurt, we we pray you would tear down any cynicism, and self-righteousness that we might have, or maybe even fear that we might have from really getting to know you. And we just, we pray that you would allow us to know you for exactly who you are, that we would love you, and that you would give us an incredibly satisfying and wonderful relationship with you as individuals and as a body. We thank you that we can pray that with faith because we believe that's something that's in your will and the scriptures say we can pray those things with faith and expectancy, Lord. So we're excited and we pray with faith about how you're going to be at work in our lives, even just this week. And maybe next week when we get together, we can share some of those things. But thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in the... The wonderful name, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.